Well, this might be the last time in a while that I say, open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Uh, yeah, we have some clapping in the crowds. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm secretly clapping at the same thing. Uh, no, I'm, I'm kidding. Ecclesiastes has, has been challenging. I was sharing this with someone beforehand. And praying through where we would go next, back before Ecclesiastes, I really wanted to go into Romans. And just to be transparent with you guys, I did not feel equipped to preach through Romans. So I thought, hey, what about Ecclesiastes? And so I uh, started looking at this. And so last week, all that to say, last week I was in Orlando at a wonderful conference. And I was telling this to some, some guys. I said, yeah, I, um, some pastor friends, I said, I, I didn't want to go into Romans because I just didn't feel ready to preach through Romans, um, and so I, I thought I would turn to Ecclesiastes, and they thought, you th- they, they thought I was crazy, um, and you might think I'm crazy now, because we just went through it, but um, uh, they're like, you thought, so they encouraged me, you should have went through Romans, it probably would have been easier. Uh, Romans, as you know, is filled with deep doctrinal, just richness. And, uh, and I, I guess I just wanted to do that justice as if I can do any of Scripture justice. But uh, so tonight, or t- tonight, today uh, will be our last sermon, at least for right now, on the book of Ecclesiastes. And I was hoping to end last week, but the, the last portion I just thought needed a little more treatment than, than what I was going to be able to give it in conjunction with kind of an overview of Ecclesiastes. And so... This morning, what I want to do is an overview of Ecclesiastes. Uh, this is a little different than our typical expository sermons where we jump into one verse and, or one passage and we stay there the whole time. Uh, what we're going to do is kind of trace some themes through the book of Ecclesiastes and kind of give a nice overview of the book of Ecclesiastes, although, of course, the text is still driving our points. With that said, uh, kind of the what we're going to do, I'm going to take a sentence that I believe to be to encapsulate uh, that uh, that kind of summarizes, if you will, the major themes in Ecclesiastes, and kind of putting those together to get one big theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. And that theme, I believe, is the first line there, uh, or you'll see there's fear God in order. To, uh, wait, 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 wait. Here, let's do this. Don't fill in any blanks yet, all right? Hold off on the blanks. Here's the, here's the thought. Just hear me say this. Fear God in order to turn a vain, empty life into a meaningful life, which will enjoy God's gifts and ultimately result in the treasuring of Jesus Christ. And I believe that to be the overarching theme and kind of some little themes inside of that. The little themes inside of that to kind of break that up is fearing God. That's a, that's a large theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. The next is that life is vain and empty. The third kind of large theme in the book of Ecclesiastes is that life can be meaningful. It can have meaning and significance. Another major theme is that we should enjoy God's gifts. And now, having Christ and the New Testament, we can ultimately say that this book is pointing us to the enjoyment of God through treasuring His Son, Jesus. And by enjoying Him, the ultimate gift that God has given us to enjoy. So I would like to begin this morning with a, with a question, and that is this. Where do you find your significance, your reason for living, your meaning for this life? Where do you find that at? I want you to just to take a few moments and think through that. Where do you find that at? Let me give you some guiding thoughts. If you lose it, your life would hardly be worth living. That would probably be your answer. Whatever that is, that would be your answer. If you lose it, you would be maybe paralyzed. So now some of you are going, well, my brain, I would be paralyzed, can't live without that. That's not what I'm getting to, right? Another guiding thought, you can easily spend most or all of your time concerned with it. That is probably the thing that you find 
your significance and your reason for living and your meaning for this life. So with that in mind, let's work through this sentence that I believe to be kind of the overarching theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. That is, fear God in order to turn, the first blank, a vain and empty life. So let's kind of look back on this vain and empty life and what Ecclesiastes tells us. So if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you, we're going to kind of flip all over the place. Uh, They'll be up on the screen, but I encourage you to flip through this in your Bible, maybe even make some notes on there next to these verses. So first verse, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. We don't get very far into the book of Ecclesiastes when he kind of gets to one of his major themes, and that is life is vain. He says in verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanities. Basically meaning it is meaningless of meaninglesses. It is meaningless. He begins with telling us that it is meaningless. He doesn't mean that most things are meaningless. He means that all things are meaningless. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 3. He says, What does a man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? Life under the sun, again, is the preacher's way of talking about a life that is lived apart from God where your eyes are only seeing the horizons of the world. That is everything, when your eyes are looking this way and does not include this, that all of that that you see when it doesn't include this is vanity and is meaningless. So chapter 1, verse 14, he says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and is striving after the wind. Again in verse, chapter 2, verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. Verse 11 of chapter 2, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Again in verse 15 of chapter 2, then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. 21 of of chapter 2. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity. And, he says, even a great evil. Pressing on, verse 19 of chapter 3. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. So Kohelet, the preacher, says to us, everything apart from God is vanity. Everything apart from God is vanity. He's saying, try to live this life apart from God, and this is the life, how life is going to be. It's going to be empty. Just consider in our lives. We may not say for many of us that the totality of our life is sought, is trying to, is, is being lived apart from God. But I'm sure all of us can find areas of our lives, or at least seasons of our lives, where we are trying to live it apart from God. And the preacher says, from testing and trial, he says, you will, and obviously underneath the, Holy, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, you will only find emptiness. Now, I would question, I, I, I would want encourage you to, to think through a time in your life where you maybe you sought significance, meaning, somewhere else on this horizon apart from God. And, and I hope that you found in that that it was empty and that it was meaningless. If you didn't, I would challenge you to rethink through that time uh, in light of Scripture, in light of God. So Colette is saying to you today, you will never find it. He says this today, no endeavor, no quest obtained, no possession under the sun can give you meaning, significance, and purpose in life. But that's the deceptiveness of life, right? The, the deceptiveness of this world. There are so many things in life that seem to promise more then they're able to deliver. What are some things that promise more than they're able to deliver? What do you guys think? 
television. Yeah, they make a lot of promises. All right, some specifics. <laughs> OxyClean, that's right, Oxy. <laughs> you know, uh, you're going to get me on a rabbit trail now, but, uh, or a deer trail, as they call it. Um, I, 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 I succumbed to one of them salesmen saying, here's this liquid of stuff, and it'll solve all your problems at my door. I bought it. It's still in the cabinet. It's like seven years old. It didn't work very well. It smelled lemony, but it didn't work very well. It's like water. It's like water with a lemon in it, except it's not sticky when it dries. What now? <laughs> yeah, I hope not. <laughs> All right, what's another thing? Another thing. Money. Okay. What else? Education. Okay. Our jobs. Okay. Let's hit a little closer to home. Our families. Hmm. Okay. What else? Anything else? Yeah? Our kids. <laughs> I promise, Dad. I'll clean my room. I promise. And they don't deliver, do they? <laughs> you know, the, the grass is always greener on the other side, right? Like we, we hear these phrases. All right. Let, let's read. If you have your, uh, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Keep your finger in Ecclesiastes. Go to Romans chapter 1 with me. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, verse 21, chapter 1. I want you all to see this. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because, why? Because they, what's that say right there? They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Ultimately, hear me. When we seek significance apart from God, we are exchanging the truth for a lie. The infinite depths of pleasure in God, we are exchanging that for the shallow pleasures of this world that are temporary and fleeting. We exchange the truth for a lie. And so the question, where are you looking for significance? Blaise Pascal said this, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to way and to others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object, that is happiness. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. It is all men seek happiness. So places we seek this. Wisdom, pleasure, family, work, children, career, friends, making money, achievements, critical acclaim, romantic relationships, peer approval, friendships, competence and skill, intellect, security and comfort, these are things that we seek significance in. The lie is that earthly pleasure can provide you with the satisfaction, but you just need to give it a chance. That's the lie. The earth can provide this for you, but you just need to give it a chance. And then what happens is when, when, when it doesn't satisfy, the world says, well, you haven't tried the right thing. Keep trying. Keep, keep searching for that. Someone else out there has the significance that you're looking for. Some other object has the significance that you're looking for. Something else out there is going to fulfill you and bring you happiness. And then when you get there and you discover after one or two years of wasted life, it says, well, you just haven't found the right thing yet. Keep searching. And so we foolishly keep searching. Or it says, well, you're not satisfied yet. It's because you don't have enough of what you want. You just need more. You just need more. 
But again, consider this question. What in life are you trying to find significance in? What is it that you spend most of your time thinking about that brings you pleasure, that brings you joy, that sustains you? Whether that object is successful in bringing you happiness or not, that object is your God. And that object is your idol. Whether it's successful in bringing it or not, that is your God. John Calvin says this, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Martin Luther said this, a God is whatever we expect to provide all good in which we take refuge in all distress. Whatever you set your heart on and put your trust in, that, I tell you, is your true God. And Timothy Keller says this, a counterfeit God or an idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy and your emotion and financial resources on it without a second thought. That is your God. So I ask you the question again, where do you find significance in? Whether it's successful or not, that is your God. That is your idol, if it's anything other than the God. So in Ecclesiastes, it says this life is vain, apart from God. It is vanity, it is meaningless, it is fruitless. So the question that we have to ask is where can we turn? Where would Ecclesiastes have us to find then this satisfaction? Now obviously we know that that's God's, but the preacher's aim is to deliver us from a rosy-colored, self-confident, godless life with its inevitable cynicism and bitterness, and from trusting in wisdom, pleasure, wealth, and human justice or integrity. He says to trust in God, and he's trying to deliver us from finding satisfaction in anything else but the only one who can deliver that true satisfaction and meaning in life, and that is God. So he says to us in this book, another major theme is fear God in order to turn a vain, empty life. To fear God. A scholar by the last name of Eaton on the book of Ecclesiastes says this, The fear of God, which the teacher recommends, is not only the beginning of wisdom, it is also the beginning of joy, of contentment, and of, and of an energetic and purposeful life. So let's look at some examples of fear in the book of Ecclesiastes. First one, chapter 3, verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14. If, you don't, if you're not there, flip, if you're still in Romans, flip with me back to Ecclesiastes. Verse 14, he says, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Chapter 5, verse 7. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Chapter 7, verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from, that with, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Again, we, don't, we already expounded what each of these meant, but let's keep going. Just notice the fear of God and the, the theme here. Verse, chapter 8, verse 12 says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Because they fear before him. So the fear of God is better understood as, I, I, I would lead us, it means more than just this, but the fear of God is better understood as standing in all of the eternal, almighty, and creator God. Again, there's, there's kind of more, and we don't have time to dive into this super deeply, but it's not, it's not a terrified it's not a, I'm going to run from him. Now, for the, for the unbeliever, that might be more true. For those who are followers of Christ, it is not a fear of God. Um, it is a standing in awe of God. To fear God is not to be terrified, but to stand in awe. God is the almighty creator. I mean, think about this with me, right? We're the creator. He's 
uh, he, he's the creator, we're the what? Creation, the, the creatures. God is eternal, we're, we are what? God is eternal, we are, yes, immortal, we are not, yes, he is, that's <laughs> like a sesame, yeah, this is and this is not, I don't know, yeah. all right, God is eternal, we are not, we are a finite vapor, God is sovereign, we are what? Other than not, <laughs> that's like saying Jesus as an answer for everything, or the Bible, where does it say that at, in the Bible, yes, maybe not. All right, so God is sovereign. We are not. Yes, we are not. All right, so we, we are dependent. We have no sovereignty. We are totally and utterly dependent upon his control, and we are in control of nothing, ultimately. God is holy. We are sinners. <laughs> we are sinners. Ha, ha, ha. That's not the point to laugh. All right, God is holy. We are sinners. It is not fitting that we, st- it is only fitting that we stand in awe of him. It's only fitting that we have a reverence for him. With that said, engaging with God requires thoughtful, reverent preparation. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1 through 3 does not explicitly talk about fear, but it's talking about this standing in awe of God, of, of, of understanding who we are in his presence. So chapter 5, verse 1 through 3, um, it says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. We should enter into God's presence with a fear in reverence, and awe in reverence. Understanding that your words matter, and that our heart, where our heart's at, matters. Just think how we live life not fearing God. Consider your life this past week. Did you do anything this past week that would indicate that you do not fear God? That you do not respect and have a reverence for God? Do you think this morning? You know, let me give a, a side note here. We we often kind of have this misperception, misconception that the the closer we grow to God, uh, the more mature believer we become, the less we sin. I don't know that that's so much true. Uh, it's I think the more we realize our sinfulness the closer we get to the throne. He does sanctify us. He does change us and all that. But I think we begin to realize the depth of our sin the more we grow closer to God. Um, So with that, fearing God and keeping his commands, we talked about this last week, is our essence. That's what Ecclesiastes tells us. It is our essence. Chapter 12, verse 13 in, in Ecclesiastes says, The end of the matter... All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And we talked about last week how that word duty is not in the actual Hebrew, but instead it is literally translated, for this is the whole of man. I think it's better understood that God has created us to stand in awe in Him and keep His commandments, and that is our essence, to live in submission to God course you tie that then to with what we talked about back around Christmas with Christ in the incarnation living his life submissive to to God and being powered by the Holy Spirit to do so and then we see here that we should stand in all of God and have a reverence for him and a fear for him that and, and as we have that then we we obey and we live obedient lives um, and that this is the whole of who we are this is God's design for us. So let's talk about reverence. What would reverence do to us in light of our relationship with God? Give me some thoughts. What would reverence do? If we have reverence for God, what would that cause us to do? What would that look like practically? What do you think? 
Mm-hmm. Humility. Very good. What else? Thankful. Okay. Very good. Humility. Thankfulness. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What else? An urgency? Okay. Okay. Here's a few things that I wrote down. Reverence for God will cause us to guard our steps when we engage God. Reverence for God will cause us to draw near to listen rather than to blabber like fools. Reverence for God will cause us not to be rash with our mouth. Of course, the same thing I just said. Reverence for God will cause us not to delay in fulfilling any promises we have made to God. Reverence for God should cause us not to come up with lame excuses for not fulfilling our promises. Reverence for God will make our worship truly awesome. So recognizing that life is empty, we begin by fearing God, trusting God. And then it begins to venture into what this meaningful life looks like. So back to kind of our our overarching theme. Fear God in order to turn a vain, empty life into a meaningful life which will enjoy God's gifts and ultimately result in the treasuring of Jesus Christ. So the preacher, Kohelet, here back to the text, he, he, he wishes to drive us to see that God is there, that He is good and generous, and that only such an outlook makes life coherent and fulfilling. It comes out our understanding of God and seeing the reality of who God is is where the beginning, or where it, our meaningful life begins. First thought, the only pleasure that can ultimately fulfill us is pleasure in God. The, all, the only pleasure, this is what we've seen in Ecclesiastes, that the only pleasure that can ultimately fulfill us is pleasure in God. Alright, let's talk about this for a few moments. Pleasure in itself is not wrong, although there are some pleasures that are wrong. Right? What would be some pleasures, okay, now, let, me, let me give us some parameters here. Right, nothing that's embarrassing. And let's not think far out there. Let's think our practical day-to-day lives, what are some pleasures that's not God that we try to seek pleasure in that could be bad? What do you think? Ice cream and what? Violent entertainment, okay. Sports, Super Bowl. Too much food, yes. Amen. What was that? Pleasure and revenge, absolutely, yeah. Money. Okay, now let's take what are some things that are good, but that can become ultimate pleasure for us, therefore becoming our idol. Hmm? Money? Mm-hmm. What else? Do what? Our kids? Busyness? Service in the church? Yeah. What? Comfort? Yeah. Comfort and control? Affirmation? Power? Yeah. Rusty's feeding me answers up here. He's like my teleprompter. Just reading every line. <laughs> so the fundamental problem. So we have to understand to begin with that seeking pleasure and pleasure is not wrong. There were some people in the past who thought that way. Some philosophers. But it's not. It's just a matter of where it's found. The fundamental problem is seeking pleasure as a substitute for God is the wrong way. The solution is not to renounce pleasure but to seek pleasure in God. Seek pleasure in God. I mean, think about it. I mean, the world thinks that our agenda is to make everyone miserable. I mean, we say what? Die to yourself, deny yourself, take up your cross, die daily. I mean, to the world, that does not sound like fun, does it? I mean, to me, that doesn't sound like fun, honestly. Uh, I'm sinful. It doesn't sound like fun. But Jesus says when you die to yourself, you find new life in me. You find the pleasure in me. 
So meaning is not found in the self-gratifying pursuit of earthly pleasure, but true pleasure is found in God. Next thought. The very realities that weary the unbeliever bring meaning to the life of the believer. If you remember this, this was way back in Ecclesiastes in chapter 3. Let's read chapter 3, verse 1 together. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. And if you remember from back when we worked through that, what we found was that the only answer to meaningless existence is the providence of God. If God is not involved intimately with His creature, then there is no meaning to our existence. It is meaningless. He decrees what He does, everything that happens, the hair that falls from our head, He decrees everything with a purpose. He carries the decrees out for that purpose. And so the fact that he has willed it and willed it with purpose is what to us with this time for everything, when we see that, we recognize that it brings meaning to all the subsequent events that God is providing for and sustaining and decreeing and carrying out. So all of the vanity, all this life is vanity. We've seen that apart from God. The first step towards meaning is fearing God. But let me give us a caveat here as we continue to work through this. Meaning is not the end goal. Meaning is the byproduct of the end goal. So the end goal is God and pleasure in God. And through that we find meaning. Through that we find enjoyment. So, on with that sentence. Fear God in order to turn a vain, empty life into a meaningful life, which will enjoy God's gifts. Now, this is where uh, I think we, um, where Baptists tend to get a little antsy. Um, Because we get a little antsy thinking that Well, if we enjoy these things on earth, are we not enjoying God? And I think there's a a rightful understanding of that that we found in Ecclesiastes. But let's just talk about it plainly. First thought, learn to treasure each day. Learn to treasure each day. Chapter 7, verse 2 of Ecclesiastes, he says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. So the question we asked on that day is, is it really better to go to a funeral rather than to a feast? How many of you would rather go to a funeral than go to a feast? All those that haven't considered the mortician as a career choice uh, would probably rather go to a, uh, a, uh, a feast. I would rather go to a feast. Well, so why does he say this? He says that this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. I mean, we all know that we will die someday. I mean, how many of us like to think about the fact that we will die someday? Anybody? Maybe, maybe, yeah. But here's the deal. He says we cannot deny, what he's saying here is we cannot deny the reality of that which takes place in the funeral home, and we cannot deny that as a reality for all of us. It will happen. And he says this, this is the key, I think, to understanding that phrase, or that that sentence, that verse is, he says, and the living will lay it to heart. He means they will keep it in mind. They will live their days according to this knowledge. They will be living with death at the back of their mind. They will live treasuring each day because of the inevitability of death. And it doesn't matter which age we find ourselves, whether that is 
15 or that is 65 or 85 or 10, whatever the age is. Uh, we need to live life with death in the back of our minds. Um, I'll leave it at that. Next thought from Ecclesiastes. We are to enjoy God's daily gifts. That word order is specific there. His daily gifts. The gifts that he gives to us on a daily basis. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 18. He says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. For this is his lot. The emphasis here falls on enjoyment in the passage. Find enjoyment in the common things of life. And this, is, this is just a plain reading of the text, just this verse, and then we have to understand this verse in light of, in light of the, the bigger context. But God has only given us a few days on earth. There's nothing that we can do about this, but we can do something about how we live these few days. How we live these few days. We can use them to pursue money and end up with vexation, sickness, and resentment. Or we can begin every day with the goal of enjoyment that God has given us everything for that day. Start with the common everyday things. Food, drink, work. You say, alright, but and we asked this question when we were in the series, what about those who are wealthy? Now, again, we're wealthy if we're talking relatively speaking. All of us are in this room. But just, he, he addresses the wealthy in this context of enjoying everything. In verse 19 of chapter 5, he says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Notice the stress in that sentence is on this is a gift of God. God gives wealth and possessions followed by God gives ability to enjoy them. So you can have wealth and positions, but God doesn't have to give you the ability to enjoy them. And God can give you the ability to enjoy wealth and positions, but God doesn't have to give you the wealth and possessions. But both of them come from God. The point is wealth in itself is not evil, it's a gift of God. But wealth as an end in itself is a sickening evil. Pursuing wealth as an end in itself will lead people to ruin. But one can accept wealth as a gift from God and enjoy it. We should pursue daily enjoyment. What's interesting is when we pursue daily enjoyment, that should lead us to seeing them as gifts from God. So then, our, the end result is not ultimately enjoyment in those things, but ultimately enjoyment in God as the provider of those things. But there's nothing wrong with enjoying those gifts that God has given us. Another thought that kind of falls underneath this uh, umbrella of enjoying God's gifts is in response to the unpredictability of this life, we just enjoy to the fullest the days God gives us. Chapter 9, verse 7. Ecclesiastes says, Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. If you're Baptist, grape juice. For God has... Already approved what you do. He says we have been encouraged before to enjoy life. The life that God gives us. But here he's saying it in an urgent fashion. Here in the context he's saying it with an urgency. To enjoy. Enjoy. He says go, eat, drink, enjoy. Go is kind of like a wake-up call here. There's no time to waste. Stop your complaining. Stop nursing your anger. Stop brooding over your problems. Get over your anxiety saying, go, eat your bread and enjoyment. Don't rush through your meals. Don't slop your food like a hog. God made us only to need food in order to live. But also, God did not make food only for us to, to live, but for us to enjoy as well. He says, drink your wine with a merry heart. 
God has also provided a rich variety of drinks. In Israel, wine was a favorite. This reminds us of the pagan slogan, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, right? Yeah. Who, uh, anybody know where that comes from? Anybody? What? 300, the movie 300? Eat and drink for tomorrow we die, right? And Kohelet's thought here is so much more profound uh, than that. Look at chapter 9, verse 7 of Ecclesiastes. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Long ago, God approved our enjoyment of food and drink. <clears throat> Think of creation. He not only provided us with the necessities to live, but with an abundance of variety. I mean, think about that. Think about the garden. Like, you know, it wasn't a Weight Watchers diet. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was variety and it had taste. I'm sure to them it was like, oh, this is my, this is my first leaf I've ever eaten. Uh, I'm sure this is delicious. He's already approved that we enjoy this. In Psalm 104, 15, he says, And wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. I think the point here is that God is honored and pleased when we enjoy his provisions. Do you enjoy his provisions? Or are you just trying to find satisfaction and enjoyment in what you don't have? I've always told Sarah, if it came down to bread and milk, and that's all we could eat, then we'll just enjoy it like God has provided it, just as He is the same in providing what we have today. Of course, if we were to take this, it would be wine and bread, not milk and bread. So, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 9. Of course, for us, wine is probably a little more expensive, uh, is my guess. Verse 9 of chapter 9, he says, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. Don't you just love his rolling? I love it. All the days of your vain life. Enjoy your wife that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. Uh, yeah, an Ecclesiastes commentary said this, says, There has always been within the Christian tradition uh, a shunning of created things uh, and a tendency that understands true spirit, spirituality as involving the shunning of the created things rather than the enjoyment of these things and thankfulness to God who has blessed us with them. The teacher helps us to see that the latter is the true spirituality. Enjoying God's gift, good gifts is true spirituality. So and there's even this undertone in modern Christian, even in our circles, that that poverty is synonymous with piety. Uh, and that is just blasphemous. Uh, and the, at the same token, there's other in our circles, well, I wouldn't consider these in our circles, but that say that, that prosperity is synonymous with piety. That if you have true faith, it, you must have prosperity, or else you don't have enough faith to have this prosperity. Again, blasphemous. We have true spirituality is enjoying God and the good gifts that He's given us. So, in view of certain death and the unpredictability of life, He says, eat your bread with enjoyment, drink your wine with a merry heart, eat life, eat life, yeah, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Whatever your hands find, whatever your hand finds to do, do with your might. To do with all that you have. So here we are. Gonna kind of wrap, continue wrapping this thing up for us. Life apart from God is what? Vanity. It's vain. Standing in all of God leads to a meaningful life with the enjoyment of God's gifts. Then my question, is all of this simply to enjoy some music, some food, some wine, your toil, or is there much more? Is there much more? I believe there's more. I believe all this is pointing us to something much grander.
something much more eternal and everlasting. All of this is pointing towards the enjoyment, I believe, of our Savior Jesus Christ and ultimately the enjoyments of Him for all eternity. So it points to the enjoyment of Him now, but ultimately to the enjoyment of Him for all of eternity. This life is tr- if this life is truly preparation for the future, then now is the time to begin enjoying Christ. So back to the sentence, back to the, the overarching thing. Fear God in order to turn a vain, empty life into a meaningful life, which will enjoy God's gifts and ultimately result in the treasuring of Jesus Christ. Let's work through this. Let's talk through a few descriptors of, of our God. God as the creator. Let's talk about God as the creator. In 12, verse 1, it says, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. This Hebrew word is bara, means to create or make. This word has profound theological significance. It has only God as its subject. So this Hebrew word can only have God as its subject. Only God can create in the, in the sense implied by bara. This word expresses creation. It also, sorry, this word also expresses creation out of nothing. So with this word, it carries those two connotations, that it is God as the subject. He's the one doing the action, and it is out of nothing. Uh, a, an expository dictionary by, written by Vine says this, But Ra is a rich theological vehicle for communicating the sovereign power of God who originates and regulates all things to His glory. So when he says, remember the Creator, this is who he's talking about. Next thought there, God's righteousness. The main idea of divine righteousness is that God acts according to a perfect internal standard of right and wrong. This is God's righteousness. He always does what is right. The Hebrew word and the Greek word for righteousness have like a forensic type concept to them. Our God expects us to act according to His standards and therefore to be righteous. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and, with, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. So again, just describing God, just come some, some broad descriptions here. It's going to help us tie a few things together here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Thirdly, God's goodness. God's goodness. God is universally good to all mankind. God is universally good to all mankind. Read with me Psalm 145, 13-16. He says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand to satisfy the desire of every living thing. God is universally good at one level to the entire earth. The garden, the the fruits of this earth, But God's universal blessings um, are not exception to the covenantal nature of God's goodness. And that's where, we, where that line kind of comes in. Not all creatures receive the same blessings of God's goodness. His goodness does not obligate Him to give the same blessings to all. Uh, again, we don't have time to dive into this, but... Let's move forward. So God is creator, God is righteous, God is goodness, and God's mercy. God's mercy. God's mercy. I think largely what we see in Ecclesiastes is we see God's mercy. We see God's rescue from the vanity of this life. 
We see God's, as we've entitled the series, God's divine interruption of our pursuit of satisfaction and something that, would, that cannot provide. Romans 15, verse 8 through 21 says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God. So what we see here is Christ, Christ did what he did that the nations might love the glory of God and that the nations might praise the glory of God. That's what we see in this couple verses, 15, verse 18, 8 through 21. 18 through 21. Uh, sorry. Right, uh, 8 and 9. I got this. 8 and 9. 15 verse 8 and 9. There we go. But the verse continues on. So he doesn't just stop at Christ passion that the nations would glorify God and nations might praise the glory of God. They don't, it doesn't just stop right there. What does it say at the end of that verse? It says, for His mercy. So Christ's passion is that we would glorify God, that the nations would praise God for and glorify God for His mercy. The mercy of God was something to be praised, um, something to rejoice about. And Christ's passion is not just, and I think this is where this is, this is profound here, is that it's not just that Christ came so that we would glorify God, but we glorify God for something specific, and that is for His mercy, and His mercy in ours. So, summary of God's character He's a creator God, owning all the universe. He's the righteous God. Everything He does is upright. He is the good God. He has bestowed His goodness upon all mankind, and especially goodness to those who are His children. And He's a merciful God. He has been benevolent to His creation. Ultimately, this mercy and benevolence is delivered in the form of the crucified and resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in our Savior that we see this. So think with me here for a few moments. In this world, we become slaves to our idols. Right? That's what we kind of start out. We become slaves to that which we treasure most. Our hearts seek good by placing it above God. It becomes our ultimate in our lives. We exchange the truth for a lie, therefore enslaving ourselves to our manufactured God pursuit of satisfaction apart from God. But John tells us in chapter 8, verse 36, so if the Son sets you free, he says what? You will be free indeed. I mean, think about it. So, so all we have to, instead of pursuing this, we just got to pursue that. And that's where the freedom from all of this vanity takes place. And it's not hard. Like, I mean, it's hard, but it's not hard. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not a hard concept. It's just hard to do. But it doesn't. It, but even in that, we know from other scriptures that, that it's not. It's not even our doing. It's it's our dependence on the Holy Spirit's doing in our life to turn us from the enslavement to this to free to serve God. I would encourage you in that to search in your life. What is it that you're finding significance in? And if it's anything but God, you are a slave to that. And Christ says, "If the Son sets you free." You're free indeed. You see, all of the things, I, I think Keller is, is on to something. Most of us, I don't think, are choosing to avoid God by that which is immoral. We're choosing to not be in line with God by that which is moral. But we've taken that which is moral and made it ultimate. So it has become our idol. It's become above God. We're taking something good and made it evil by making it above God. So we've become slaves to our idols. And Jesus says he will set us free. We have a second thing in this world we have. We have a lot to fear in this world apart from God. We have a lot to fear. The uncertainty of life. Death. Suffering. But Jesus tells us in chapter 10, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather... Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We don't have to fear. 
Matter of fact, Ecclesiastes never tells us to fear this death. He tells us to fear God and keep death in the back of our mind. Because the, 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 the death in the back of our mind is not something to be feared. It's something to help us keep godly perspective on this life. We were made, though, the second thing, or the last thing here, to enjoy the gifts of the giver and the giver himself. And ultimately, this giver has given us Jesus Christ. Proverbs 13, 14 says, The teaching of the wise is a fountain of youth. The one may turn away from the snares, that one may turn away from the snares of death. John 7, verse 37 through 39 says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The picture here in Ecclesiastes is, yes, to enjoy these daily things. But it ultimately points forward to there is coming a day where there is a food that you will eat and a water that you will drink that will be eternal. That it will satisfy you ultimately and eternally. Yes, enjoy these things. But understand, they come from the one who will give you the ultimate gift of Jesus Christ. And he points us to God and to his son. So fear God. Back to our sentence. Fear God in order to turn a vain, empty life into a meaningful life which will enjoy God's gifts and ultimately result in the treasuring of Jesus Christ. So I take us back to the first question I asked. Where do you find significance, your reason for living, your meaning for this life? Where do you find that at? Is it anything but God? Is it anything but God? And the last thing I would say to us is this. Turn from the things of this earth. Stand in awe of your creator. And find your ultimate meaning, identity, and satisfaction in Christ. Turn. Repent. It's an idol. Repent and turn. We're going to worship here. Um, I'm going to pray for us in a few moments. And I want to encourage you as, as we sing, as, uh, as the band leads us, that you would take these moments. Don't delay turning from those idols. Oh, I'll get to it later. You won't get to it later. Ask God. First, I would encourage us two things. Ask God to show you that which you're trying to find significance in. Then ask God to forgive you if it's anything but Him. And then let this be a beginning to a daily seeking the Holy Spirit, saying, Father, am I finding significance in anything other than You? Do I have any idols in my heart? And please deliver them from me. It's not a, it's not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps and strap. It's, it's a, if anything, it's a resolve to submit to the Holy Spirit. It's a... a a welcoming of the Holy Spirit's work in your life to remove these things. So I want to pray for us in that, and then we're going to sing. So let's pray. Father God, I pray in these next moments uh, that you would reveal to your people the idols in their hearts, just as you revealed to your people, the Israelites, the idols that they had visibly in front of them, and I'm sure the idols that were in their hearts as well. Father, we may not have visible idols that we set up candles and shrines to. But Father, we have them in our hearts that are deeply rooted. And Father, it's in this that we are trying to find significance in those things. They give us reason for living. They, they are what determines our mood and our happiness and our enjoyment. And, and Father, those things are like roller coasters. They go up and down and then they eventually come to a stop. But instead, Father, enjoyment in you is everlasting. It is not in 
a, a roller coaster, but instead as a steady trajectory towards the cross that finds its completion in the cross, yet our enjoyment gets to continue. And so, Father, I pray as we sing to you, our great God, that we would worship you and treasure you for having mercy on us and not leaving us to, to figure this out to ourselves and not leaving us to find that at the end of our road there is no satisfaction in the things of this life, but instead... You've been merciful to reveal yourself to us now so that we can find satisfaction and fulfillment in you now and not have to wait. And you've saved us so much vanity and wastefulness and meaninglessness so that we can have enjoyment in you. That we don't have to live dutiful lives. We get to enjoy you. We get to serve you out of enjoyment and be in relationship with you, and find ultimate pleasure. Father, it's in your Son's most holy, precious, effective name that we pray. Amen. Would you all stand with us as we worship?